On this episode of the podcast, Josh puts the finishing touches on the Babe Ruth saga. We're diving deep into the decline of the Red Sox franchise. Woo! Sorry, guys. We'd love to see it, though. I love a good curse. (laughs) It's just, I'm a sucker for a good curse. Sports are so superstitious. You love to see some confirmation of that bag. Of their superstitions. Yeah. It makes me feel better about my little game day rituals. Mm Mm-hmm. Even though there's no definitive proof it does anything. Your eagle head of strong emotion. Eagle head of strong emotion. It well, only comes out when the eagles are losing. So I'm not or going to winning say. winning by a lot. That's true, unless if they're winning by. If the outcome's pretty much decided. It has, <laughs> by the second quarter? Yeah. If I'm feeling bad and I put it on, we will lose the game. If I'm feeling good and I put it on, we will win the game. So. You should feel good at the kickoff and just pop that bad boy out. Westover, I'm not a perfect man. I'm not a it's master not of my emotions. Yep. You know? He just has strong emotions and has to wear an eagle head sometimes. Exactly. To process them. Hide my shame. Alright, let's start this. Yeah, let's recline that sofa. Loosen that tie. Because this is mismanaged. Welcome to Mismanaged, a weekly podcast where we kick back and criticize the failings of paid sports professionals while also offering them foolproof solutions to all their management woes. I'm Austin Egan. I'm Josh Sweezy. And I'm Nathaniel Westover. Let's get into it. This week we are continuing our discussion of one of the worst moves in MLB and just sports history, the Babe Ruth trade. Warning once again to any and all Boston Red Sox fans, we'll stop torturing you next week. I promise. We'll move to somebody else. Until then, I'm sorry, guys. It's going to be a rough one. Okay. So we covered this briefly about two weeks ago, uh, but the Red Sox were very successful in the early 1900s. Before they traded Babe Ruth in 1919, the Sox had won five of the first 15 World Series, and the Yankees had not won a single pennant, much less a World Series. Nice. After the trade... Yeah, after the trade, their fortunes completely reversed. The Yankees have won 27 World Series, which is 2.45 times more than the next major league team, which is the Cardinals, with 11. So, yeah, they they went on to dominate for years and years and years and years. I mean, they're the Yankees. Uh, And the Red Sox World Series drought was explained by the curse of the Bambino, which is the subject of our discussion today. Which, Bambino is just another one of Babe Ruth's many nicknames. Babe. The Babe. The Bambino. The King of Swing. The Sultan of Swat. Babe. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll take a look at the full history of the Red Sox, including how they broke the curse. So after their 1918 World Series victory, the Red Sox wouldn't make it to the World Series again for 28 years until 1946. Ooh. Well, you know, they're high off the end of World War II. Yep. They had won an impressive 104 games that year, and they were favored over the St. Louis Cardinals. The Red Sox were led by Hall of Famer left fielder Ted Williams, who had just gotten back. Uh, this was his first year back in the league after serving as a fighter pilot in World War II. We love nice. Ted Williams. So yes, they Man's were like... an absolute legend. They were like, thank you, we'll take you back, <laughs> and now we will be good again. Thank you for your service. Uh, please, hit the ball. 
1946 was the first of Williams's two MVP seasons, and he held basically he just you know led the league in basically every offensive category that Swap year. Swap the stats. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately for Ted and the Red Sox, he would prove mostly ineffective in the World Series as he was plagued by injury throughout. Carried the team on his back and they broke at the last second. Yeah. No bullet wound. <laughs> You can't carry the team all the way. Uh, despite that, the Red Sox jumped out to a 3-2 game lead over the Cardinals. The Cardinals won Game 6 at home through sensational defense and a great pitching performance. They stayed in St. Louis for the decisive Game 7, and it came down to the wire. Red Sox center fielder Dom DiMaggio, the, younger, the youngest brother of Joe DiMaggio, drove in two runs at the top of the 8th to tie the game 3-3. The curse struck for the first time as DiMaggio pulled a hamstring on the play and was forced to leave the game. Ooh, no. No, certainly not good. He was replaced by pinch runner Leon Culberson, who also replaced DiMaggio in center field when it got to the bottom of the inning. Right fielder Eno Slaughter of the Cardinals led off with a single in the bottom of the eighth. After a failed bunt and a flyout, Slaughter found himself stranded at first. So picture the scene. Two outs. Two outs. Bottom of the eighth. Tie game. That's when left fielder Harry Walker stepped up to the plate. After the count went to two balls and one strike, the Cardinals manager called for a hit and run. Do you, yeah. do you know how that is? Yeah, he's going to swing at it and guy's just going to run no matter what. Yeah, so it's a high-risk, high-reward play where a team uses a stolen base attempt to try to place the defending infielders out of position for an attempted base hit. So they just, he just runs no matter what, even before yeah, the ball Yeah, your instruction hit. as the base runner is just, you're going. You're going no the matter what. The minute the pitcher <laughs> starts his stretch or wind-up, you're like, go! I've never actually seen that from that position. I've seen it with a guy on third, uh-huh. and there's like... <laughs> Two outs. It's like, he's just going to swing. You're going to Just run. go home. Yep. Nope, this is from first. Uh, so with Slaughter taking off from first, Walker made solid contact and hit a live line drive to center field. It was fielded by Culberson, who had replaced DiMaggio, and he threw a relay to shortstop Johnny Pesky. As Pesky caught the ball, Slaughter was rounding third, ignoring the desperate stop signs from the third base coach, Mike Gonzalez. Slaughter him! <laughs> Slaughter was heading home. Yeah, he was. What happened next is still a matter of contention. Some people say that Pesky assumed Slaughter would stop at third, so he checked Walker at first base. Some say that, uh, uh, others say that Pesky was so shocked to see Slaughter sprinting for home plate that it caused him to freeze. But either way, after a delay and a weak rushed throw to home plate, Slaughter was able to score on what would, uh, what would be the deciding run. Oh my gosh. This play became known as Slaughter's Mad Dash. So he, <laughs> he ran name. all the way from first home. Uh, Pesky took most of the blame for holding the ball, but the soft throw from Culberson might have been more to blame. Either way, it never would have happened if the strong-armed DiMaggio had been in center field for that play. Mm. So the Cardinals win the 1946 World Series in seven games, and the curse continues. In 1948, the Red Sox tied for the best record in the American League, but they lost to the Cleveland Indians in the MLB's first ever one-game playoff, so no World Series for them. Ooh. 
The next year, the Red Sox just needed to win one of their final two games to win the pennant. They lost both to the Yankees. Oof. Ah. Who would go on to win five consecutive World Series from 1949 to 1953. Oh, Lord. That has to hurt the soul. Right? <laughs> like, just so badly. Oh, no. And it's your rivals, man. Uh, so the Red Sox would get their next crack at the World Series in 1967. After, lo- after eight losing seasons in a row, the Red Sox shocked everyone when they went on to win the 1967 pennant race on the last weekend of the season with a record of 92-70. and 70. Wow. They were yet led by Hall of Famer Carl Yastrzemski, who won AL MVP and the Triple Crown that year. Yeah, so he's, uh, he's okay. He, had he a, can hit the ball. He he's had a okay pretty good year. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also had stud Jim Lonberg on the mound who won the AL Cy Young that season. Oh, they just swept all the awards. Uh-huh. They were pretty stacked. Yeah, seems like they're shooing to win. These Red Sox also had two other All-Stars on their team. So four All-Stars altogether. Uh, they met their old friends, the St. Louis Cardinals. Ah, and it guys. went to seven games once again. The Cardinals were led by a guy named Bob Gibson. You might have heard of him. He doesn't sound familiar. He's another Hall of Famer. Nah, that Bob Gibson or uh-huh. talking about Robert Gibson? I thought you were talking about the guy that makes all those guitars. Old Bobby Gibson? Old Bobby Gibson <laughs> down by the river? He'll sell you a guitar. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so Gibson and Lundberg faced off in the decisive Game 7, but Lundberg was starting on two days rest and was not able to keep up. Gibson allowed only three hits while striking out ten batters and hitting a home run of his own over a complete game. Ooh, it's never good when the pitcher scores his own runs, does the work for himself. Unless that pitcher's name is Shohei (laughs) Otani. If only they could make the playoffs. Yeah, maybe someday. Maybe someday. I don't think he's going to stay on that team forever. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, the Cardinals cruise to a 7-2 win. Red Sox lose the World Series, and the curse continues. Hey. Uh, the Sox got their next sniff of glory in 1975. <laughs> uh, I don't care for that word. You're welcome. Their next sniff of glory. <laughs> I'll sniff anything once. Glory twice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when they met the Cincinnati Reds in the World Series. This series has gone down in history as one of the best ever played. Cincinnati was at the height of their Big Red Machine dynasty and had just recorded a franchise record 108-win season. They were led by MVP Pete Rose and NL MVP Joe Morgan. The Reds were up three games to two over the Sox as Game 6 stretched all the way to the 12th inning. That's when Red Sox catcher Carlton Fisk hit a walk-off home run to send the series to seven. Oh yeah, because they talk about that in uh, Goodwill Hunting. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's the Red Sox. That's how I relate to these things. <laughs> That's how you relate to the world. It's the Red Sox in the World Series, so you know Game 7 is going to have some drama. The Sox had a three-run lead going into the top of the sixth. Pete Rose was on first when Johnny Bender hit a routine ground ball to the shortstop. Denny Doyle covered second and tagged out Rose, but as he threw to first, Pete Rose uh, slid in hard and high, causing his, sa- his throw to sail into the Boston dugout. It should have been an ending-inning double play, but Bench was able to make it safely to second. From there, Tony Perez 
hit his second pitch over the wall to drive in two runs. The Reds were creeping back with the score 3-2. to two. The Reds tied it when Ken Griffey Sr. got walked, stole second, and then scored on a two-out single that Rose hit to center field. 3-3. to three. Classic. Oof. In the top of the ninth, Griffey was walked again. He got to second on a sacrifice and third on a ground out. And stepping up to the plate was Pete Rose. Oh, boy. Well, this is just unfortunate. <laughs> it's a, a hell of a lineup. Oh. Yeah, this is you the got one machine. really speedy fella. <laughs> yeah. And then Pete Rose lumbering on behind he's just like, him. like, yeah, I'm going to hit the ball now. <laughs> and then he's looking at him, he's like, you think I'm good? Wait until you meet my boy. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the Red Sox did the smart thing, and they immediately walked Pete Rose. They smart. were like, actually, smart. no, we're That's not going to give you a brilliant choice. But that left it all up to Joe Morgan, the NL MVP, <laughs> who batted right after Pete Rose. Wait, is there anyone on second at this point, or is it just nope. first, no, and third? First, first and third? First and third. Load the bases. <laughs> I don't load the bases. I don't care. Uh, Morgan swung low and took a breaking ball into center field that scored Griffey as the go-ahead run. It was the second time in the series that Rose had been walked, only for Morgan to drive in the game-winning run. The same thing happened in Game Three. <laughs> Jeez. The Reds then retired the Sox in order, uh, including uh, Yastrzemski, who popped out to center field for the final out of the World Series. The Reds win, and the curse continues. Oh, boy. Woof. Yeah. We're, go- we're moving right really, along, really though. It's really fun no. to make fun of them. <laughs> you know, the first couple was like, uh, you just held onto the ball like a dummy. Oh, your hamstring exploded. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> and now it's just like... That's just a freak accident. Now it's just God is like, hey, there's uh, three out of the nine innings. I'm going to have the exact same <laughs> lineup hitch, like smack you around mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah, and you're always going to get it to game seven. So you're always going to get about as oh, close yeah. as you can get. You're always going to get the closest sniff of glory you're ever going to feel. But... <laughs> a real deep inhale of glory. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, fast forward to three years later in 1978. Woot. The Red Sox had a 14-game lead in the American League East over the Yankees on July 18th. Oh, no. Uh-oh. Oh, no. <laughs> However, the Yankees decided they wanted to win a few games and mounted a comeback. <laughs> uh, you know what? Let's start playing now. Yeah, it's about time we started participating. <laughs> we spotted you 14 games. <laughs> we wanted to see how far we could catch up. Eventually, they tied the Sox on September 10th after sweeping Boston in a four-game series that got the nickname among Sox fans, the Boston Massacre. Oh. I Ooh. think that refers to something else. Very but That's fitting. <laughs> the Boston Massacre well, part this two. one mattered more. <laughs> People died. Eventually, the two teams ended up dead even, so they were forced to play a one-game playoff at Fenway. Oh, at least they got home field. Yeah, I'm sure they win. Yeah, (laughs) the turning point in the game came when Yankees shortstop Bucky Dent hit a three-run homer that bounced off the wall, off and over the wall, to give the Yankees a three-two lead. They would hang on to win five to four and go on to win another World Series. It's so hard to watch. Yeah, just... Especially when you give him a three-run shot to the shortstop. <laughs> He's Bucky Dent. The Bucky Dent? Yep. He's going to put Dent in that ball. <laughs> Apparently. Uh, and this takes us to perhaps the most painful year. The year of our Lord, 1986. And the World Series between the Sox 
and the Mets. Ooh! Mets. No, no, that was 69. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. So these are the this normal. The, oh, wait, no, no the, the other ones that they're Mets, doing. They the, just did a 33. Okay, like that's what they're ago. doing, not the Miracle Mets. The ones that they're doing the 30 for 30. Yep. On. One of the mm-hmm. greatest Mets. I've the heard greatest teams of all time. Fantastic yes. nonsense about it. Yes. yes. I'm excited. We should watch that. Yes. Uh, so we go immediately to game six. Yep. The Red Sox led the series three to two and are hoping to close things out in New York. The game can't be decided after nine innings with the score tied three to three. Boston scored two runs at the top of the 10th to go up five to three. They just need three outs to win their first World Series since 1918 and end the curse of the Bambino. Easy. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. The first Mets batter flew out to left. The second flew out to center. They just need one more out. Let me guess. They get it. They get it, and they end the curse, yeah. The third batter, Gary Carter, was able to get get on base with a single. That's when utility man Kevin Mitchell stepped up to the plate to pinch hit for the Mets reliever. Well, it actually took Mitchell a minute to get to the plate. Allegedly, the rookie had thought the game ended after the second pop fly, so he wasn't in the dugout. Somebody had to go into the dressing room, let him know he's up to bat. He had to put his uniform back on, grab his bat. Oh. And so he's all sad. <laughs> yeah, he was like booking he's his like, flight man. home and like, oh. Lost the world series. Well, maybe they were at, I think they were they at were in New, New York. York. Anyway, so he had to quickly get his uniform on and get out there. Nevertheless, Mitchell came through with a single of his own, which advanced Carter to second. So two outs. Well, that makes man sense. Man on second, man on first. I'm surprised it was only a single. The amount of juice flowing through that kid's veins. <laughs> oh my god! He's half. Un- Can you imagine? Put yourself in he that situation. Right you're now? half undressed. You're super depressed. Guy comes out. In your head, it's over. You have no chance. And then one of those miracle things happens. No, this is a nightmare scenario. This you're like like halfway getting. Changed. No, exactly, exactly. It's a mix. It's not like a happy thing. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, whatever. And then a guy comes and he's like, you're up to bat, and you're like. Bottom of the ninth in the World, World Series? Series? I'm a rookie? <laughs> Woo! And then you're out there, and yep. you hit a bomb. Yep. A single. <laughs> a single bomb. Uh, but now the tying runs were in place, but Boston still just needed one out. Easy. The Red Sox quickly got two strikes against third baseman Ray Knight. The Red Sox just needed one more strike, but Knight had other ideas. Yeah, he he singled to left... And Carter was make it was able to make it home from second. Mitchell made it all the way to third with Ray safe at first. The score was now five to four. The Red Sox decided that this was the perfect moment to pull their closer in favor for the veteran Bob Stanley. The Mets' next batter was Mookie Wilson, who after six pitches had a count of two balls and two strikes. Once again, the Red Sox were within one strike of ending the series. That's when Bob Stanley threw a breaking ball that broke bad. It turned sharply inside and bounced in front of Wilson. Wilson hit the deck trying to avoid the wild pitch. The catcher tried to control the ball, but it rolled all the way to the backstop. Oh, no. Wilson waved on Mitchell, who easily scored to tie the game at 5-5. Five to five. Knight was, able, was also able to advance to second on the wild pitch, setting him up for the winning run. After the 10th pitch of the at-bat, Wilson was finally able to put the ball in play. He hit a ground ball to first base. 
it should have been an easy scoop and tag to end the inning and send the game into the 11th. But in one of the most infamous errors in World Series history, first baseman Bill Buckner had the ball roll through his legs and into right field. Knight rounded third and scored the winning run without a play at the plate, and the Mets tied the series with a 6-5 win. Oh. 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 I can't imagine. I feel like I've seen footage of mm-hmm. that error. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty infamous. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Oh my gosh. Also, can we just sit, take a pause and say kudos to the guy that kept fouling off balls <laughs> yes. and just being like, I will get mine. <laughs> that it has to be the most exhausting thing for a pitcher. Oh. It's like you're throwing double digit pitches to the same mm-hmm. guy who's just like, give me a clean one. Yep. <laughs> and you've already had one wild pitch that scored a run. Oh yeah, that's bad. I have to imagine he's just thinking, I'm going to give him all the sauce I have, mm-hmm. and he oversauced it. Apparently, the uh, one of the base runners was like super, leading off like super far, and mm. the second baseman was like trying to get the pitcher to notice to try to pick off play and he was just so focused on getting on striking Wilson out that he didn't like didn't see him at all so he just kept throwing pitch after pitch after pitch oh my gosh so when you just keep sneaking your way sneaking your way <laughs> the, the man <laughs> fell in love with the with the legend he would be he would being the last being the one to end the curse yep. yeah so they stayed in new york for game seven. So there's still game seven. Yeah. Sure. It's, it's well, not over yet. It is. After you lose that game, it's <laughs> oh, over. Oh, yeah, no. No way you come back and win uh, game seven. That first yeah. baseman's like, I can't touch the ball. <laughs> Ever again. Season. Yeah, and everything seemed to be going the Red Sox way at first. Of course. Boston went up three to nothing in the second and held New York scoreless until the bottom of the sixth, where New York tied the game. The Mets built on that lead in the bottom of the seventh, to go up six to three. Oh my gosh, that's oh. a terrible two-minute stretch. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a six-run swing right there. The Sox gave themselves a little bit of hope by scoring twice in the eighth, but the Mets matched that in the bottom of the inning. The score stood at eight to five at the top of the ninth. Oh no. The first Boston batter was retired after a foul pop. The second grounded out, leaving Marty Barrett as Boston's last hope. Marty Barrett. With the count two to two, Barrett swung and missed. Oh, Oof. The Mets win the World Series, and the curse continues. Just keep on rolling. <laughs> keep on trucking, Boston. It's okay. We'll get through this. I promise. Mankind may age, but the curse <laughs> never <laughs> does. In 1988 and 1990, the Sox got as far as the American League Championship Series, only to get swept by the Oakland A's twice. They were also swept by the Indians in the 1995 Division Series in three games, which extended their postseason losing streak to a major league record 13 games. They lost again to the Indians in 1998 and were defeated by the Yankees four games to one in the 1999 ALCS. And that brings us to 2003. Hey! We're getting close! We've been so far. We're 85 years in, and everybody in Boston has died of a broken heart. Uh, In 2003, the Red Sox met the Yankees in Game 7 of the ALCS. Boston held a 5-2 lead going into the 8th inning. The Sox manager opted to stay with their starter instead of going to the bullpen, and the Yankees rallied to tie the game. 
In the bottom of the 11th, the Yankees hit a solo home run to win the game and break the hearts of the Boston Red Sox fans. And then they died again. Yes. Not sure if they went on to win the World Series that time, so that might be at least a consolation there. 2003? Yeah. Um, Diamondbacks. Diamondbacks. Yeah, I was just trying to think who did, because I didn't feel like it was the Yankees. We talked Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson. The big Uh, unit. The big unit. We are now all the way up to 2004. The Red Sox met the Yankees again in the ALCS. Yeah. The Red Sox lost the first three games of the series, including getting thrashed in Game 3, 19-8. Oh my goodness. They made a mistake. They should just not have shown up for that game. <laughs> that would have been better. In Game 4, the Red Sox trailed 4-3 to in the bottom of the ninth, and it looked like the curse would continue. But against all odds, the Red Sox were able to tie the game. Then, in the bottom of the twelfth, David Ortiz crushed a two-run homer to win the game. The Sox won the next three games to become the first MLB team to come back from a 3-0 deficit in a seven-game playoff series. Incredible. Bloody Sox. The bloody Sox. But waiting for the Sox in the World Series were their old nemesis from 1946 and 1967, the St. Louis Cardinals. Woo! But Boston had faith. And a lot of staples. <laughs> and after vanquishing the evil empire of the New York Yankees, nothing could stop them. This was their year. They swept the Cardinals in four games. Hey, yeah. take that, Babe Ruth. So that 19-8 to defeat was their last defeat. Of the, of well, you get that beat that bad, you're like, <laughs> if we ever lose again, we don't deserve to play. We don't deserve to be here. The last out of the series was Cardinals shortstop Edgar Renteria, who wore number three, the same number as Babe Ruth. Ah, we love that. Fitting. Red Sox win the World Series. The curse is ended. Woo! Yay! Good, Good for job, them. guys. You made it. And when they ended it, they ended it hard. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure they partied for weeks. The curse of the Bambino lasted for 86 years, from 1918 to 2004. The curse narrative didn't really gain traction until the 1986 World Series and that devastating error from Bill Buckner. But it's fun to look back at all the misfortune and mismanagement that plagued the Red Sox for decades. Now with the curse broken, the Red Sox would go on to win the World Series again in 2007, 2013, and 2018. And that puts an end to our three-part series on the trade of Babe Ruth and the Curse of the Bambino. Hey, and a wonderfully told tale it was. Oh, thank you, thank you. Great times. I hope I never have to do this much research again. You wanted for the this. the rest of my life. You wanted this. <laughs> you picked this. Uh, special thanks to all of my sources. Anthony Kaskrovince from MLB.com, Jane Levy from the New York Times, the editors of History.com, and of course... The ever-faithful Wikipedia. Ah, makes you live forever. I hope so, otherwise I'm screwed. Yeah. Well, I'll make a new internet information. <laughs> it's like a, I'll make a new internet. It's better than the old <laughs> In one. In my own image. <laughs> 
Now that Josh has concluded our deep dive into the curse of the Bambino, we will once again be shaking up our Dear GM segment. Uh, this week, we are pitching stadium-specific suggestions, uh, be it food ideas or architectural adjustments. We'll be throwing out some nonsense uh, for those GMs and owners to, to chew on a little bit. Yep. Mull it over. Think about it. Josh, lead us off. I know you all love the sound of my voice, so here I go. My suggestion is for the Miami Marlins and their stadium, Lone Depot Park. Blow it up. First of all, it's a beautiful name. Lone, Lone Depot Park. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue. Lone really feels <laughs> Lone Depot Park. <laughs> I think you guys should take a page out of the Jacksonville Jaguars stadium playbook and put in a stadium pool. Mm. Right where the field is. The whole thing. Water baseball. Water baseball polo. Actually, we'll get to that. Oh, no. <laughs> it's really the only thing that anyone should copy from the Jaguar franchise at all. Why not have their mascot like, just jump off of crazy heights again? Because that's what they do. They're doing bungee jumps constantly. What? Yeah, have you not seen that? I don't pay attention. That's fair. Uh, the weather in Miami is beautiful during the baseball season, and it's not like you guys are going to be playing in the postseason anyway, so why not? It'd be fun, and maybe you guys could actually bring in some fans, just for the pool. There, there'll just be baseball going on in the background. I don't think they people might have, to have like a little heads up section. Like, Look out, flying baseball. <laughs> Fly I ball. I don't think people in Miami know they have a baseball team. You know what? That's fair. Start they're prob- there. They probably think of like the Rays or something <laughs> down the way. Go Ray- go Devil Rays. Bring it back. Really Bring it back. Permanently. Okay. This week I'm addressing the Pittsburgh Pirates and their concession stands. Oh, Pittsburgh Ooh, fan uh, addresses Pittsburgh. Yeah. La Tida. First, I want to introduce to you guys one of the newest foods they're offering this year called yes. the Pittsburgh Cone. Gross. It is described as a Yinzer's take on chicken and waffles. Gross. It's a waffle cone uh-huh. filled with kielbasa, pierogies, sauerkraut, topped with Swiss cheese, and a drizzle of Russian dressing on top. Okay, that is nothing. that sounds amazing. <laughs> that sounds oh, that insane. is nothing. No, that sounds fantastic, Josh. I love all those things. <laughs> it's very Polish. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm not a f- now. I'm not a fan of sauerkraut, but it still sounds. <laughs> no, I'm not a fan of Poland. <laughs> now I. <laughs> I don't like sauerkraut. I'm kind of surprised that there's not French fries in there with you like know, romantic I, rows and stuff, but you would think. Uh, so, I spent the day at work coming up with a new pitch. Okay. Take on the Pittsburgh cone, we call it the Pittsburgh roll. It's a sushi roll: uh-huh. kielbasa, French fries, sauerkraut, and uh, instead of like rice on the outside yes. or nori paper, you flatten out like the pierogi dough. Gross. Okay, I hear you. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a little bit, you roll it up, fry it off like you do because there's fried sushi and stuff. Uh-huh. Sure. And then uh, the Russian dressing on top, the Thousand Island. Interesting. I really wish everybody could see the hand motions that went along with that description because it really, <laughs> it really sells Made it. No sense. <laughs> I actually kind of want to see a video of the hand motions without the sound <laughs> and like put my own like dub just, over yeah, it. Yeah, just try to guess what he's talking about. Yeah, it'd be fascinating. This week, I'm addressing the San Francisco Giants. Uh, Oracle Park 
is one of the prettiest ballparks in the entire MLB. There's just no debate in no. it. Uh, sitting on McCovey Cove, uh-huh. named after one of their all-timers. <laughs> named after the cove. <laughs> you ha- they have beautiful views and fun traditions. Uh, they have Portuguese water dogs that fetch their home runs from the water. They Incredible. have an 80-foot Coca-Cola fun park. Uh, I don't even know what that means. It's just like an 80-foot tall Coca-Cola statue that has like slides and like I think maybe like a trampoline or something. And the kids play in it. I was kind of picturing a, a water park, but just instead of water, there's just Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that they should have that though. I so changed my sticky. suggestion. <laughs> so sticky. Uh, and even in the cheap seats, you get beautiful looks at the Bay Bridge in the marina. The stadium is truly iconic, but it could be elevated to backyard baseball levels of breathtaking. Which is what everyone wants. Here's my suggestion. Lower the field to below water level. Mm -hmm. Step one. Yes. Once you've done that, build an aquarium on that right field wall. Uh Because currently the right field wall is just like... It's the big brick wall. It's the big brick wall that has like the walking track on it and it's just right into the water. It's nice. Um, You build an aquarium into the right field wall. All of a sudden, it feels like the game is being played in the water. You know, because you have all the fish around. I would say just make a clear window into the (laughs) cove, but that's going to be nothing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just, Just... Seaweed and exactly dirty water. Yeah, no one wants to <laughs> no see that. that. Maybe a dead body. <laughs> yep. For so sure. you just put on an aquarium, then build out a little farther, and uh-huh. then you can have people go into the Walk aquarium through. on the other side. And maybe in like, obviously, you might want to make it. You could do a two-way glass too, so that it has a mirror effect if you're looking from the ballpark in. So it just looks like a lot of eternally deep water. And then if you're on the aquarium side, you can't distract. Got the players, players, but you can still watch the game. Sure. Which would be cool. That would um, be. It would be fun, zany, and dare I say iconic. Uh, you would need to do some work with the whole warning track thing. There's probably some trial and error. Because <laughs> a player running into an aquarium glass wall would be well, awesome. they're pretty sturdy. No, I'm not worried about the glass break. I'm worried about the player hurting themselves. <laughs> like when Babe Ruth knocked himself unconscious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, like you said, those things are sturdy. <laughs> Sturdier than a outfielder's teeth. Yes. Um, or skull. Yeah, that too, I guess. But it would also open up avenues for new revenue. So it's both a terrible and fantastic idea. I love it. So I say risk it. And I say it's worth the effort. Oh, absolutely. And that is the pod. If you enjoyed this or any of our other episodes, please remember to give us a like or a follow. Maybe even leave us a review. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you may listen to your podcasts. In the words of Babe Ruth, quote, you just can't beat the person who never gives up, unquote. Aw. little unintentional homage to those pesky Red Sox. <laughs> Way to never give up, Boston. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and remember, this was Mismanaged. See you.